Well, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 15. And I've also got a couple bookmarks for you. Bookmark Deuteronomy 25 and also Luke 4. We'll be going there. Deuteronomy 25 and Luke 4, but we'll begin in 1 Samuel 15. When you work your way through books of the Bible, as we do, there are days when you're forced to preach on topics that you might not normally choose. The text, not the preacher, determines the subject matter of the sermon. And there are times when that subject matter is hard and confusing. 1 Samuel 15 is one such passage. It's a passage that at its root is about obedience. Obedience to God's voice, doing what he says. And as we'll see, and as I mentioned in the prayer just now, you can give him gifts, you can offer sacrifice, you can worship and engage in religious ritual, But if there's no obedience paired with such religious actions, they are worthless. In this chapter, King Saul is partially obedient to God's voice. He does some, but not all, of what the Lord says to do. And so the Lord strips his kingship from him. And we're told that the Lord regrets making Saul king. Now, we're going to look at the issue of the Lord regretting next week. What about today? What did the Lord's voice tell Saul to do? What was the mission that he failed to fully carry out? It was to kill all the Amalekites. This neighboring tribe that Israel had a long, rough history with. Saul was given the order to kill all of them. To devote to destruction every man, every woman, every child, every animal of the Amalekites. What do you do with a passage like this? Well, we know what the atheists do with them. This is the kind of text that atheists love to grab onto and beat Christians over the head with. And while they're bludgeoning the Christian, they'll say things like, How could anyone in the year 2024 believe in and defend a God who would do something so cruel? How can you call the Bible the Word of God when it contains atrocities like this? So either the Bible is not true or your God is an immoral monster and I want nothing to do with him. That's what the atheists love to do with this passage. But what about those pastors who would call themselves theological liberals? 
liberal Christians, progressive Christians, what do they do with passages like this? I think normally they would choose to ignore such passages. But when they don't, they'll say something like, well, that is not the word of God. I heard one such minister say that the Bible is like the manger in which Christ was laid. Right? There is some truth in it. There is some goodness in it, just as Christ was in the manger. But there's also a lot of straw. And chapters like 1 Samuel 15 to the theological liberal is pure straw. Straw that can be thrown out and disregarded. Now, this begs the question, which parts of the Bible are straw? Well, probably those that we don't like. Probably those that our culture in our moment of history find offensive. Well, what about us? What's our reaction to passages like this? Maybe confusion? Maybe even embarrassment? Maybe we're tempted to read through them quickly, not giving them much thought. Or maybe we pretend like God isn't saying what he's clearly saying. And I want to say here at the start, it is, it is okay to admit that some passages are hard for us. It's okay to say that there are parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable and confuse us. But we can't throw them out. We can't do like Thomas Jefferson and just get out a pair of scissors and cut out everything that we don't like. We've got to take the Apostle Paul seriously when he says all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Now Paul doesn't say that all Scripture is sanitized. He doesn't say that all Scripture is PG-rated. All of it is true. That's because it's breathed out by God. So when it comes to hard passages like today, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and ask for His help in believing His Word and trusting His Word. So let's do that now before we read our text. Almighty God, I remember... Your servant Peter saying that your other servant Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And Lord, I second. Peter was not the only one. Lord, there are portions of your word that can be difficult. So Lord, would you help us? Would you send your spirit to bring light to our minds? Lord, would we humble ourselves before your throne, remembering that you are God and we are not. You are the creator and we are not. You are wholly good and we are not. You are wholly wise and we are not. Give us humility this morning. And a further dependence, a childlike faith 
in you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to read the entirety of 1 Samuel 15, and we'll return back to it for the next couple weeks. There was no way I could do one, one sermon on this chapter. There's, there's too much. 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God summoned so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Then Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Right, I know we just read it, but before we wade back in, I just want to summarize again what happens with the Amalekites. Samuel, the Lord's prophet, comes to Saul, the king of Israel, and gives a command that comes straight from God himself. The message is this, we see it in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Now Saul, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul then gathers a large army, goes to the city of Amalek, 
and partially fulfills this mission from God. We're told in verse 8 that Saul devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. His army kills almost everyone. But again, he's partially obedient because he doesn't kill everyone or everything. He takes the king of the Amalekites alive, a man named Agag. He spares the best of the livestock. And it's this partial fulfillment of the command. This keeping some alive that displeases the Lord. It's this lack of total destruction that causes Saul to have his kingship stripped from him. Well, where do we start? Probably with the God giving this command. There is so much that we are told about the one true God on the pages of Scripture. And we need to be very careful not to divorce this command from everything else we know of Him. As Presbyterians, one of our constitutional documents is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it is so helpful 150 ministers over a period of seven years looked at the whole of Scripture and categorized and systematized its teaching. And I want to briefly read you a portion of what these men gathered at Westminster Abbey wrote concerning the Lord. They write, He is immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and in addition, most just, and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now I can guess which parts of that paragraph we love to think about. But we can't forget that the same God, who is most loving and gracious and merciful and abundant in goodness, the same God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, is the same God who, in addition, is most just and terrible in his judgments, hates all sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. I think those latter descriptions are what we see today in this command for Saul to slaughter the Amalekites. Remember the fullness of who God is. The same God who is described as a consuming fire is the same God who sent his son to come and die for sinners. Right? We do not have the liberty to remake him into our image and into what we think is right or to try to tame this lion. And as we go forward, we need to echo the same question that Abraham asks in Genesis 18. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. I want you to hear what Dale Ralph Davis titled this section of chapter 15 in his commentary. He calls it the comfort of vengeance. The comfort of vengeance. Maybe that wasn't your reaction to reading this passage. To feel comforted. But if you're a believer, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, it should be. And Lord willing, I won't fail in showing you how the vengeance of the Lord is a comfort to his people. All right, so we began with the Lord. Now let's look at the Amalekites. Who were they? Well, they were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, the hairy hunter that we talked about last week. In Genesis 36, we read that Esau has a grandson named Amalek. And if we thought that the relationship between Jacob and Esau was sour, that was nothing compared to what their children thought of each other. Last week, As we looked at Numbers 21, I mentioned how some other children of Esau, the Edomites, refused to allow Israel to pass through their land. That's how the Edomites acted towards Israel. What about the Amalekites? Well, look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came up out of Egypt. What's he talking about? Well, He's talking about something that happened back in Exodus 17. You may remember this from our study on Exodus we did a couple years ago. Moses is standing on top of a hill. He's got his staff in his hand. And whenever he holds his hand up in the air, Israel does well in the battle. And whenever he lowers his hand, Israel does poorly in the battle. And so what do they do? They roll a big stone over. That Abraham, not Abraham, Moses can sit on and then two men grab his wrist and hold his hand up in the air all day until the enemy was defeated. And that enemy was the Amalekites. Turn to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, look at verse 17. Here we're told what caused that battle. And and I want you to see this because maybe this passage bothers you because you don't know who the Amalekites are and you don't know what they did. So look at Deuteronomy 25 beginning in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. 
So just to summarize, children of Israel have been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They are now crossing the Sinai wilderness in a long line. And these distant relatives see them coming, and they stay hidden in the hills until the first of the line passes by. They wait and wait and wait and wait until the end of the line is right before them. Now, I want you to imagine if everyone in our town got on Highway 72 and marched to Memphis. Everyone. All of the residents in Corinth got on Highway 72 and were marching to Memphis. Who would be in front? Well, Kenneth Williams' Saturday morning running group would be in front. The pastor at First Pres, who is a much better runner than me, he would be in front. Our police officers, our young men, our our football team, our cross-country team, they would all naturally make their way to the front of the line. Well, who would be lagging behind at the rear? The elderly? The disabled? Young children? Pregnant or nursing mothers? They would go at a slower pace, and over time, they would find themselves at the back of the line. And this would all be okay if you met an enemy on the road. If you got to Walnut, and all the walnuts came out, and prevented, tried to stop us from passing through their land. You know, we've got, hey, we've got our young men. We've got our football team. We've got our police officers. They're all at the front. They can deal with it. And then you, you have everyone else, the more vulnerable, at, at the back, away from any conflict, out of harm's way. What did the Amalekites do? They waited for all the runners to pass. They waited for the police officers to pass. They waited for all the healthy, the strong, the military-aged men. They stayed hidden until they'd all passed. And then they ambushed the end of the line. Without warning, without provocation, they attacked and killed the vulnerable the women, the young children, the elderly, all those who lacked behind, all those who were faint and weary. And they did so out of their hatred for the people of Israel and the God of Israel. I mean, look back at verse 2 of 1 Samuel 15. God says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. I mean, that's why this command is given. Because the Lord made note of He has not forgotten the evil, the violence that was committed against his people. And so he will exact justice. He will do to this tribe the very thing they were trying to do to his people. This is not ethnic cleansing. You'll hear folks refer to what happens here as ethnic cleansing. This is not ethnic cleansing. The Amalekites are not killed because of their ethnicity. They aren't killed because of their skin color. They aren't killed because of some immutable characteristic they're born with. This has nothing to do with their ethnicity. 
It has everything to do with their sin. That's why this command is given. And before you say, well, that happened 300 years ago. What what about these Amalekites? What if these have moderated? What if they're now a, a peaceful tribe? Not the case. Look at how Samuel describes them in verse 18. He calls them sinners. Look at what Samuel says to their king in verse 33. As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless. This tribe has not changed. They have not moderated. They have not repented. And they'd had 300 years to do so. You can look at the story of Jonah and see what happens when an evil nation repents of their sin and turn to the Lord. God will relent from disaster. They will be spared, much to Jonah's chagrin. That happened with the people of Nineveh. But it didn't happen with the Amalekites. But it's more than just attacking God's vulnerable people. They're threatening God's plan of redemption. I mean, if you think back to the study of the kingdom that we did over Christmas, God had promised that through this family, the head of the serpent would be crushed. God promised that through this family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God promised that through this family, a king would come who would reign forever and ever. And back in Exodus, we saw what God did when Pharaoh tried to destroy this family. Pharaoh's army was drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea. And the Amalekites wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to end this family. They wanted to end the Lord's plan of salvation. And here's my proof. Do you know what happens in the book of Esther? Can you, do you remember? The book of Esther takes place much later in Israel's history when the Jews, those children of Abraham who are from Judah, they're living far off under the power of the king of Persia. There's a man named Haman who comes up with a plan Haman has an edict written, and it's written in the name of the king of Persia, the emperor. This edict, Haman has sealed with the king's ring. This edict is sent out to every province, every governor, every official in the Persian empire. And it instructed them to kill, to destroy, to annihilate all Jews young and old women and children in one day. Kill all of them. And then you're free to plunder all their goods. That was Haman's plan. And of course, if you know the story, you know that Queen Esther, a Jew herself, steps in to save her people. But what about Haman? Do you remember his full name? He's called Haman the Agagite. What's the name of the Amalekite king that Saul spares? Agag. Haman is from his line. 
He is a descendant of this king. Saul hadn't killed everyone, and so one of them pops up later in Israel's history and tries to kill all of them. He's not forgotten his people's great hatred of Israel, which is why he does what he does. This is not an innocent native group just out minding their own business. In his sermon on this text, I heard Alistair Begg say, God wanted them to be destroyed, not because they were Amalekites, but because of their sinful opposition to his plan, to his people, and to his purposes. That's why this command was given. The Lord was protecting his plan, his people, and his purposes. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. That's what the Lord of hosts says. Which means he remembers every wrong done to his people. In Revelation 21, we're told that he will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. And not only will he wipe away every tear, he will also note and remember and punish those who caused those tears. Hopefully you can begin to see why Dale Ralph Davis called this the comfort of vengeance. Because it is never safe to attack the people of God. Christ will defend his bride. And that defense may be partial today, but the scriptures promise that the full weight of the judgment of God will be brought to bear on the last day against those who hate, attack, and persecute his church. Maybe we read this text and it makes you uncomfortable. And not to belittle you in any way, but do you know who finds great comfort in this passage? The African Christian living in the Congo who has their entire village wiped out by a local warlord? That African believer has no recourse other than to plead to the Lord to remember and do justice. You know who found great comfort in this passage? The Christians living in Demor, Lebanon, who experienced that awful massacre in 1976 perpetrated by the Palestine Liberation Organization. I remember in seminary, Dr. Derek Thomas speaking about pastoring a church in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He pastored that church during the Troubles when the IRA was bombing Protestant churches. Dr. Thomas told us that he and his congregation had no problem praying imprecatory psalms to the Lord against those who were bombing their sister churches. They prayed for the Lord to either regenerate those IRA bombers and bring them to new life, just like he'd done to Saul on the road to Damascus. But if not, bring divine retribution. Do to them what they were doing to the church. You know, no one in any of those examples felt 
uncomfortable with texts like this. They didn't clutch their pearls and say, how could God do that? They found great comfort in the vengeance of God. Think of the example we're given in Revelation chapter 6. John sees those martyrs, those who had been killed for their witness of Christ. And what does he hear them say? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's what the martyred saints are saying. And what's the answer they're given? Rest a little longer. The wrath of the Lamb will be restrained a little longer. And then as the book of Revelation continues, it shows the Lord answering their prayers to avenge their deaths. Listen to this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. It's, it's lengthy, but it is good. He writes, quote, It is precisely in God's vengeance that his people find comfort. The Lord does not forget how his enemies have hated, trampled, and crushed his people. To hear, see, your God will come with vengeance, Isaiah 35, 4, is to hear good news of great joy. For that means that God will put down and overthrow all who strangle and oppress his people. If he does not do that, what ultimate hope do we have? No vengeance on God's enemies no deli- means no deliverance for his people. The full gospel, the good news in all its completeness, always proclaims both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, Isaiah 61. Got a little more to read. His people enjoy his favor, his enemies receive his vengeance. Perhaps we do not understand this as we should, but God's suffering people always have. It is the bedrock of their prayers. How vigilant he is to mark all those who despise those under his shelter. Some folks put beware of dog signs on their houses or fences. But the sign on the Lord's kingdom reads, beware the flock. Rulers and nations who read it should shudder, especially if they have touched and butchered the sheep of his hand. End quote. Now, Dr. Davis mentioned Isaiah 61 in that quote. And you don't have to turn there. You can actually go ahead and turn to Luke 4. In Isaiah 61... We read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I just read from Isaiah 61 and By me telling you where to turn, you've already guessed who repeats those words. It's the Lord Jesus. And I want to read Luke 4 with you. Beginning in verse 16. 
And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus tells them, I am the one spoken of in Isaiah 61. But this is interesting, because what does he leave out? I read Isaiah 61 to you already for a reason. What does Jesus leave out? Those last words in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. He leaves out the day of vengeance of our God. Now why? Was, Was he embarrassed of that verse? Was it straw that he just forgot about? Was it a passage like 1 Samuel 15 that needed to just not be talked about? No, Jesus left off those words. Because in his first appearing, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in his second appearing, he will bring with him the day of vengeance of our God. You know, in his first appearing, he proclaimed good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. He gave sight to the blind. He freed those who were oppressed. He'll say things like, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He'll say things like, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A period of time which we still find ourselves living in. A period of grace. A period of time where repentance and forgiveness of sins is still possible. And is freely held out to anyone who would believe. Right? And and how did the Lord Jesus accomplish this year of the Lord's favor? By suffering the ultimate judgment of the wrath of God in place of sinners. You know, the Lord told Saul to go and kill all of the Amalekites. Meaning, exhaust my judgment against them completely. And this is why the Lord is angry with Saul when he doesn't. There's judgment remaining. He does not fully exhaust God's judgment against them. He doesn't pour out the full measure of God's wrath against their sin. There are some remaining. But not the Lord Jesus. He took all of it. <laughs> 
the just judgment of every man, woman, child, infant who would ever cry out to him for mercy. God's judgment due their sin was fully satisfied, totally exhausted on the cross. This is why Paul can write to the church in Rome and tell them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because unlike King Saul, King Jesus fully exhausted the judgment of God. He took himself the sword of divine judgment on Calvary so that it would never be directed at his church. He came first to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And again, that's where we remain today. Which means that you and I in this life will never receive the same terrible command that Saul was given. I was talking with one of you a few weeks back uh, when I talked about uh, Joshua, not, not Joshua, Jonathan going into the camp of the Philistines and laying the law down and dropping 20 Philistines and chasing them and a violent scene. And I was talking with one of you saying, I, I just, I can't understand that. That's in the Old Testament and then things seem to be very different in the New Testament. What is this difference? The difference is that we are living in the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord Jesus came and said, this, it has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which means that we are to love unbelievers. We are to love those who are hostile to the plan and purposes of God. We are to plead with them to look to Christ and be forgiven. To not let this window of grace pass because he's coming again. And when he does, it'll be to proclaim that verse that he left off in Luke 4. When he comes again, it'll be to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. On that day, the martyred saints in Revelation 6 will have their prayers fully answered. King Jesus will come and judge and avenge the blood of his precious people. He will, as Revelation 19.15 says, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, so many people today are worried about how the world will end. I saw an interesting article, not an article, it was an interview between, oh, who's that actor? It was Tucker Carlson and what was the actor? Um, oh, man, he's been in like a thousand movies, but, oh, man, I, 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 I'm going to mess it up. He's, his, his deal is where, and this, hey, this could be a very real thing that could happen. The son doing something that fries all of our electrical grid. And that this is his thing. Um, this, is what he's, this is what he's worried about. I mean, you completely wipe out our electrical grid, things can go badly. People are worried about the climate crisis. They're worried about nuclear war. They're worried about economic collapse. I recently saw a, a video talking about how the world's wealthiest people like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, they're buying up islands 
And they're building bunkers that cost tens of millions of dollars. They're preparing for something terrible. But many of those same people would hear this sermon and scornfully laugh and tell me that I am a crazy religious nut. It was Dennis Quaid, that's who it was. (laughs) And it would come to me. They would call me a religious nut. I don't know if Dennis would. Dennis seemed like a nice guy. The same people buying up 30 million islands and then building $30 million bunkers of them would ridicule and mock the Bible and those who believe it. They say, your God isn't going to do anything. But what does Peter write in 2 Peter 3? The Lord is storing up his wrath. It's being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Choose this day whose voice you will heed. The voices of the politicians, the voices of the Silicon Valley executives, or the voice of the Lord God Almighty. There's so many applications I could make, but alas, I am out of time. I told you there's no way I could cover this and everything else in one sermon. We'll be here two more weeks, and as we are, maybe I can find ways to plug in some more Applications, but I want to end with this. We're taxiing to the gate. There's a hymn I wanted to sing today. I wanted you all to sing it, but it was just, it was too hard. I couldn't even do it by myself. And if I couldn't get the tune down by myself, I knew it would be a disaster to try to lead it. But it is so appropriate. It's the hymn entitled, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And if you would, just turn. We aren't going to sing it. Just I want you to read the words. It's number 318. I don't, I don't only want you to hear the words. I want you to read them. Again, this is, this is not the word of God. It's a great hymn, though. It's a hymn that tells of Christ's second appearing when he will bring with him the day of vengeance. And he will avenge the blood of his precious saints, his favored sinners. 318. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia. Alleluia. God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who sat at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Every island, sea, and mountain, heaven and earth shall flee away. All who hate him must confound it. Hear the trump proclaim the day. Come to judgment. Come to judgment. Come to judgment. Come away. Now redemption long expected. 
see in solemn pomp appear. All his saints by men rejected now shall meet him in the air. Alleluia. Alleluia. See the day of God appear. Let's pray. Almighty God, may we remember the reasons that Jesus first came and the reason why he will come again. Lord, he did come to bring the year of favor, to bring healing and life and redemption, to bring grace, to open the eyes of the blind, to make the lame walk and the dead rise, to change the hearts of sinners, to give them new life in you. Lord, may we remember that we are still in that day. You are still working. You are still gathering. You are drawing your sheep to yourself, all of them. Not one will be lost. Lord, he will come again. He will come again to do justice, to bring terrible judgment, to avenge his people. And Lord, may we find comfort in your justice, in your judgment, as your sheep. And Lord, give us an urgency. Lord, I know myself and maybe others, we go to a funeral of someone that we just, we don't know. There didn't really seem to be any fruit that would point they're walking with you and Lord in that moment we wish we could be a universalist but Lord we can't so Lord would you give us an urgency to not just hunker down in our bunker and only teach and train our children but Lord give us a heart and an urgency to share the truth of God to share the day of the Lord's favor and the glorious grace of Jesus Christ with a world living in darkness and perishing. That many more of your favored sinners may be saved through the blood of the Lamb that was slain. We ask this in his name. Amen.